Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, after two intense episodes covering Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we are backing up a bit and circling back to the topic of philosophy and philosophies that may or may not serve as handmaiden to theology. And our topic today, therefore, is pragmatism, which is dad's avowed and preferred form of handmaiden philosophy. And um, if you have uh, the same sort of reaction to this word in the English language as I do, you think pragmatism must be the least inspiring option out there. It sounds very um, <laughs> right. work work a day and industrial and um, definitely not anything that could have anything whatsoever to do with God. But it turns out there are surprising riches hidden behind that dreadful name. So, Dad, why don't you tell us, I suppose, first how you got to pragmatism, and then you can tell us why it's not as hateful a word as it seems to be. <laughs> sure, Sarah. That uh, it's, a, you know, one of the negative reactions I had to pragmatism when I first was introduced to it was William James's idea that you have to look for the cash value of any cognitive claim, the cash value. And I said, boy, isn't that just as tawdry American philosophizing <laughs> as you can get, you know? So I, I also had a negative opinion of uh, pragmatism when I was first introduced to it. And it's true that I also have some kind of deep reservations about William James in particular, and perhaps later John Dewey. Uh, but we'll get into all of that here. Uh, what I want to say is, you know, I was a philosophy major in college, and uh, it was existentialism was all the rage then. So we read Heidegger's Being in Time, and I thought that the uh, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, the little bit I understood him at that point was the great classic Lutheran philosopher. And I was very much in this kind of typical camp of uh, American Lutheran would-be theologians uh, hankering after the flesh pots of Europe. Uh, <laughs> particularly the flesh pots there. Yeah, right. The uh, Kant and Heidegger and so forth. Um my journey to pragmatism really began with Cornell West, who was uh, I, I was intellectually close to when I was a graduate student. He's a pragmatist, of course. Is that an of course? Yes. Uh, well, he he knows for for certain. He is a uh, pragmatist uh, philosophically. Okay. But I mean, that's not general knowledge about him. I wouldn't think. Well, anybody who reads him deeply would see that. You know, the, the word pragmatism comes from this Greek word, which means uh, practice, uh, something that you do, uh, a, a skill that you acquire by uh, habitual repetition uh, until you internalize it and it becomes your form of life. Uh, so it's really an idea that you don't separate uh, um, human knowledge into the servile manual labor of the worker and the pure theoretical intellectual work of the thinker. And in fact, Dewey brilliantly criticizes that dualism 
uh, where action is given to the slave or the serf or the worker, and reflection thought uh, theory is given to the leisured class who has the time to wonder about the world and think deep thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Isn't this the rationale behind the workers' brigades that were inflicted on the entire citizenry in communist countries? Is there a connection there? Yeah, there is a connection there. Of course, John Dewey was not uh, working with the communist brigades and uh, forcing the leisured class into the rice paddies or anything like that. But it was—it's more of a—it's—it's it's a more of a philosophical point here that you have a misleading idea of knowledge when you demote and ridicule savoir-faire, know-how, that comes from practice. And you have a, a, a inflated and exaggerated idea of knowledge when you think it is the product of pure navel-gazing, ivory tower speculation and things like that. In fact, be, because we're organic beings uh, located somewhere in time and space who have a immediate interest in our practical survival and prosperity in the world. Knowledge is uh, reflection, always is reflection on practice. And that's what this basic idea of pragmatism is. So I learned that from Cornell West. And he... Uh, patiently uh, weaned me off the false mother's milk I had been drinking uh, from Kant <laughs> and Heidegger. Uh, and I, I'm grateful to him for that. Uh, and this correlates, of course, with Cornell West's humanistic Marxism. You know, that this was also, many people think, part of the thinking of the early Marx, that he was in this way also something of a pragmatist, not the later so-called scientific marks, but the early humanistic marks. So those were connections there. But the main debt I owe to Cornell West was he turned me on to his own teacher, Richard Rorty, who wrote a brilliant book, which was very important for me. Um, it's called Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature. And it's just a profound attack on the illusion that knowledge is, is consists in little mental replicas that you can somehow articulate in verbal statements, little mental replicas, little copies of what's out there in the world. So if you know something, you can picture it uh, in a representation and you can also transcribe that representation into a proposition which is true because it corresponds to reality, to court, right? Something like that. Right. right. So this is against the correspondence theory of knowledge, which is very deep in Western thinking, right? Right. The correspondence theory of knowledge is a kind of naive empiricism which is not hard to refute uh, because the Hegel's refutation of naive empiricism is marvelous in the phenomenology of mind. He just points out that the minute you think you've grasped a, a sense experience 
and formulated into a representation. Already, the sense experience has passed away into the past, and you have it only in the form of a memory. And as a result, you cannot claim that it corresponds to reality because reality being in constant change and flux cannot be captured that way. You get a snapshot of what is in fact a motion picture, and you cannot claim that the snapshot corresponds to reality because you have a false idea of reality as um, a static fixed order that can be replicated mentally. Uh, in statements that correspond to it or something like that. Okay, so this is related to the whole critique of the idea that real reality is is static, like Plato's forms or something, and it's arguing that real reality is actually movement, dynamism, time, history, change. Right, and that's, that's why pragmatism really took off after Darwin and the theory oh. of uh, evolution uh, in the 1870s. Uh, which was quite an intellectual revolution at the time. Um, anyway, Richard Rorty, I was talking about his book, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, and what he really attacked was the whole idea of the Enlightenment, that we could have a knowledge of knowledge which would serve as a foundation for all the sciences. The task of philosophy was to uh, execute a theory of knowledge, an epistemology, a knowledge of knowledge. And if you succeeded in this project, and of course Kant is the one who claims to have ex succeeded at this par excellence, uh, then you have a discipline uh, which can uh, regulate all the sciences and rule in and out discourse that's rational and irrational what Kant called the Tribunal of Reason. Of course, he sat as presiding uh, judge on the tri Tribunal <laughs> of Reason, telling people whether their discourses were rational or not, according to his uh, theory of knowledge. And he was rather famous for his very restricted, restricted realm of experience, since, you know, he walked at the exact same time every day and sat at his desk and stayed in Königsberg. So not someone who uh, got his hands dirty in the, in the world all that much. And I think exactly the whole illusion of foundationalism uh, is that you can transcend what we recognize today as the historicity of reason that human reason is not some transcendental structure that hovers above the flux, uh, the maelstrom of experience and the flux of becoming, but that human reason is immersed in. That's why for us it's so important always to understand context, especially historical context, social context of thought, because we recognize now that human reason is always conditioned by, immersed in, and responsive to the, the stream of becoming in which we live and move and have our being. That sounds, you know, pl plausible and insightful. Let me just ask, a, hopefully not too, uh, a question that won't take us too far afield, but isn't uh, Rorty associated with relativism? And isn't the, the fear that especially religious people often bring to that concept of both um, knowledge and reality as being in flux and in change is simply license for a free-for-all relativism? 
Well, it could be if you confuse God with a worldview. <laughs> okay, I mean, say more. Uh, it's kind of basic to Christian theology that God is creator of all that is not God. And every time people's worldview change changes, they think they're losing their God. But that's because idolatrously they've confused God with their worldview. No, the creation is continuous action of the creator. Everything in creation is constantly in a state of becoming. It is not yet being. It is becoming, not yet being. If there is a final being, it's the eschaton, the redeemed and fulfilled creation that will be eternally in the uh, kingdom of God. Uh, 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 so yes, of course, and, and anybody who doesn't recognize the relativity of mores uh, to cultural situations doesn't even read the Bible, because the patriarchs were polygamists, you know, and we don't regard them as immoral because they were polygamists. That was their culture. Now, the culture was directed by the Lord to a certain purpose and so forth and so on. And we can affirm all of that, but we can't affirm that philosophically. We can only affirm that theologically. And that's where you have to have a strong Luther-like distinction between the disciplines of philosophy and theology. Now, of course, theologians also have to be philosophers, and they can be philosophers badly or well, but they're going to be philosophers also. Now, so we're talking about my particular preference for pragmatism, which, as we'll see in the course of this podcast, is grounded in my primary theological convictions. Okay, good. Well, then so we kind of I kept uh, asking questions, so let's get back to your own traversing. For, uh, you so you were made it through Rorty, and then what was the next step? Well, I think you know Rorty had such a profound impact on me. One of the first articles I ever uh, published in Dialogue many years ago had the title "What if the real world." is the coming of the reign of God. What if the real world is the coming of the reign of God? Which was expressing exactly how I see eschatological theology correlating with corresponding to this notion in pragmatism that our physical somatic existence on this earth is fully immersed in space, uh, in the body, and in time, in history, and is therefore in a constant state of flux and becoming, where reason is not transcendent. Reason is eminently pragmatic. It's the task of, of navigating this river of this stream of becoming, like a little fish trying safely to get from one stone to the next stone to get out of the current and rest something like that, if I can use a metaphor. The other thing Rorty stressed, therefore, was that was hermeneutics, which he didn't simply mean the interpretation of ancient texts. He meant it in the sense of Hans George Gadamer, that hermeneutics is the fundamental problem of human communication. How do we have um, an ideal uh, exchange of views or opinions such that it creates fellowship and understanding and therefore common endeavor for common purposes. 
So Rorty immediately applied to his philosophical pragmatism the notion that communication, uh, the problem of human communication and language, was central. And that's why for Rorty, the, his problem was always with people who deliver conversation stoppers. And in <laughs> fact, he, hate, he hated religion because he said, uh, even though he's a grandson uh, of a famous uh, uh, American uh, uh, theologian of the 19th century, the author of the social gospel movement, Walter Rauschenbusch. Oh, no way. Yeah, he is. He's a he's a descendant. He maybe not a grandson, maybe a grandnephew. I'm not sure exactly, but he said whenever you talk with religious people, it's God said it. I believe it. That settles conversation stopper. No, thank you. Not going there. You know, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can't. You cannot block communication by throwing down a gauntlet like that. And basically, I kind of agreed with that. I said that's that's why I don't like fundamentalism. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've all seen versions of that. And now on the left, too, but let's go on. <laughs> right. And foundationalism is also a kind of secular fundamentalism. If you think you know what knowledge is in a timeless, spaceless way, in a transcendent way, well, then you are on the tribunal and the rest of us are in the dock. And you get to decide what conversation is permitted and what conversation is not permitted and so forth. This suddenly seems terrifyingly relevant. I think so. I mean, you know, one last, I'd like to men mention just a couple more figures that have been important to me. Reinhold Niebuhr, we have to do a podcast on him eventually, was, in a, you know, kind of the, probably the premier American theologian of the mid-20th century. And uh, very interesting figure, uh, whom... Uh, Neither the liberals like Tillich uh, nor the neo-Orthodox like uh, the followers of Bart, uh, maybe not Bart himself, but his followers, uh, uh, liked Niebuhr. And I think the reason they didn't like Niebuhr or didn't understand him was they didn't understand how deeply he was immersed in pragmatism. Uh, I just want to mention that. I think that if you understand... Uh, Niebuhr's uh, uh, deep, uh, uh, being deeply formed by the pragmatist movement, a lot of what he's up to becomes more intelligible. But then, to speed forward another generation, the late Ron Thiemann, uh, who taught at Harvard University, and once told me that he restored Christology to the study of the seminary curriculum at Harvard Divinity School after an wow. absence of many, many years. He uh, had some personal issues that got him into trouble, which we don't need to dwell on. And he was a good friend of Cornell West. Uh, he uh, wanted to uh, discover Central Europe after the fall of communism. So I spent a month uh, in a car with him, driving around the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, showing him what I knew and introducing him to a lot of people. So we had a lot of time in the car together and uh, re really had a good time talking and so forth. He wrote a good book on Revelation. 
but he too shared with me how important pragmatism was for him, uh, that he had found this as a way of negotiating the uh, current intellectual scene. So anyway, that, Sarah, is a kind of a brief uh, survey of uh, my own journey uh, towards holding to pragmatic positions. Okay, so what strikes me is that I have not yet heard you say either of the names that I know are most important to you out of pragmatism. So maybe you ought to um, pull those bunnies out of the rabbit out of the the top hat now and <laughs> talk about Royce and Purse. <laughs> yes, let's start with Purse. He's a little older. He's one of the maybe the originator of pragmatism. And I, what I want to say here is that Purse was a deeply religious and perhaps even profoundly Christian thinker. Uh, uh, he concludes one of his treatises uh, with a meditation on God is love. Uh, and, I, you know, which is in the background of my interpretation of the Trinity as beloved community and so forth. But Charles Saunders Peirce really came out of scientific uh, inquiry. And as he reflected upon the process of knowing in experimental science, he came to the realization that knowledge is triadic, not dyadic. Now, what does that mean? Well, dyadic knowledge would be, here's a human subject, an active knower, and here is an object of knowledge based on a per what they called a percept, a perception of, of something. And the thinker uh, has the percept of the object and ultimately knows it when he or she can classify it, put it into a category, and then you have a concept of the percept, right? So I'm walking along the Appalachian Trail and I see a stump uh, beside the trail and I have this perception and I meditate on it, and I'm tired, and I'm ready to rest, and I say, aha, I can classify that as a chair. Now I have a concept, a concept of the stump uh, that is usable as a chair, right? That's kind of the dyadic theory of knowledge, simplified. What Peirce said is, this is a, a truncated account of how we know in science. Because what's left out is the social aspect, the audience. I have perceptions which I turn into conceptions, and then I share them, I communicate them with the community of inquiry. For them, likewise, to see what I'm seeing and test what I'm seeing with their own seeing, and therefore refining it and until we have a better conception of the reality that we're studying. And then that interpretation of reality that is achieved by scientific inquiry then becomes a fact, but a fact is just another human artifact, and it itself becomes another object of perception, conception, interpretation, and so forth. So in an endless recycling, an endlessly social recycling of knowledge, uh, knowledge is created in science itself. 
That was Charles Saunders Peirce's great discovery, that knowledge is historical and social, uh, that audience cannot be left out of the account of the subject and the object, which is in fact a triadic relationship. And because audience cannot be left out, science has not settled on a definitive catalog of facts which simply correspond to reality, end of discussion. The more science discovers, the more uh, problems for interpretation are created, the more inquiry is needed, and on and on it goes. And you can posit eventually an eschaton of knowledge or something when, when inquiry is finished. But really, for the pragmatist, that would mean that the universe is finished. And there's nothing more. There's nothing more to know, because it's come to a halt, or something like that. This is very provocative because I think it shows that on both um, religious, or let's say this, among religious people, as well as among scientific-minded people, as well as among political thinkers, there are those who want the conversation to be finished, who want the facts to be on the page beyond dispute. And the task is to cow others into recognizing their finality. And actually it is, it's a maybe more of a, a human disorder toward knowledge than something inherent in religion or science or politics. And on the other hand, then, then what the pragmatists are saying is that reality is, in fact, conversation. Human, human reality is ongoing conversation about the world we find in our, ourselves in and about the other minds that we encounter and about the conversation itself. And so on some level, to... Uh, let's put this theologically, to confess God both as creator of all that is not God, but also as the one to whom alone belongs total knowledge and total conclusions, then actually the theologically faithful thing to do is to accept the non-finality of the facts or the conversation and to stay in the conversation. And then the final point would be is to, to refute my earlier question about relativism. The reason why it's not relativistic is because to everything that I claim is is just this way for me, but not for you. You can always say back to me, but is it? Let's keep talking about that. So actually, relativism in a weird way is just the mirror opposite of the final closed conversation because it's trying to avoid ongoing challenge and conversation with other people. But pragmatism says, no, you don't get to escape out the relativism hatch any more than you do out the foundationalism or fundamentalism hatch. Did that Was that an adequate summary? I think that's right. The Classically, under the term relativism, you would be talking about uh, philosophical skepticism. And skepticism, of course, is so easily refuted, you know, because the skeptic says nothing is true. That sounds, of course, like relativism, doesn't it? But that itself is an assertion of truth. Nothing is true. So there's at least one thing that's true. Nothing is true which, of course, is self-contradictory and the whole scheme of skepticism or relativism uh, succumbs uh, to uh, in incoherence, right? Yeah, well, even more than that, nobody actually lives that way. <laughs> Put someone's right. body on the line and they will cease to be a skeptic really, really fast. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that, of course, is one of the deep points of pragmatism. 
you know, let's face up to the reality that we are organic bodies immersed here. We're earthlings located on planet Earth, uh, uh, that we have a limited lifespan between a birth and death, and that every day in every way we're little fishies swimming in the stream of becoming from the safety of one rock shelter to another rock shelter looking for a meal on the way, right? So it's a very deflating, you know, as opposed to some of the pretensions of thought, it's a very salutary, deflating view of hum humanity, I think. Or of human knowledge and what it thinks it can achieve. That's right, right. And, you know, one last thought there. The, another reason that pragmatism is not relativistic is that it does think that science achieves um, a achieves a provisional knowledge of reality. It's always open to further testing and inquiry. Uh, it's not final because it doesn't correspond to the whole of reality. It's a snapshot, which can be a very distorted picture. A fact is a snapshot, which can, in its focus and what it's attending to, it can leave out a vast array of other factors which may be important from other perspectives. You know, so what we have in science is always under the banner, our best available thinking. The thinking that has been credentialed by the competent in community of inquirers, right? But it's, it's never final in the sense that this is the last word and nothing more can be said. There's always something more that can be said. Science is always generating new uh, inquiries, new questions, precisely on the basis of what it has discovered and what it has determined to be uh, factual and so forth. So anyway, that was Charles Sanders' purse. That was his great achievement, I think. Okay. And can I just ask, so then is... is um, in Empiricism, or is maybe a pragmatism like a, a, a chastened, sober, and humble empiricism? It seems like there's more natural connection between pragmatism and empiricism than pragmatism and rationalism, at least as we've defined them in our previous episodes. Well, yes and no. All of these guys, William James, Charles Saunders Peirce, even John Dewey uh, and Josiah Royce, they were all originally idealists. Uh, because they were, yeah, they were all followers of Hegel, more or less, um, because they learned from idealism the power of language uh, to shape and form human, uh, the human relationship to the external world. Uh, pragmatism was their way of retaining the insight into the formative power of language as culturally mediated, right? Um, it was a way of deflating idealism, as we talked about several episodes ago, from the, this grandiose idea that absolute, uh, the absolute is through a process of self-disruption working itself out in human history uh, with all the kinds of... Uh, uh, implausibilities, uh, that uh, kind of right-wing theistic interpretation of idealism created. Uh, and getting it back down on earth, getting the insight into the formative power of language, 
back down on the earth. That's why, for example, Rorty conversation stoppers, hermeneutics, and some of the others will talk about why uh, Habermas talks about the ideal language situation. Habermas in Europe wrote a book called Knowledge and Human Interests. It was actually the book that Cornell West and I read together, and he revealed the influence of pragmatism on his version of critical social theory in the 70s and 80s. The pragmatists wanted to rescue the insights of idealism by deflating them from these pretentious metaphysics of the absolute disrupting itself into history and all that kind of stuff. And just say, look at what we're talking about here is uh, is uh, communities which mediate their social relationships in the prospect of navigating the physical world in in the interest of human well-being and prosperity. And all that uh, activity that uh, that activity is mediated by language. And so there was this uh, kind of a stealing from both the empiricists, their scientific focus on the actual physical interactions of the world and the need to determine truth by that study, stealing that insight from the empiricists, the formative power of language, stealing that insight from the rationalists and idealists, and taking the best of both worlds into this view of the human knower as immersed in time and space, uh, socially. Now back to Royce. Yes, uh, but I have before I talk about Royce, I have to say a little bit about William James, ah. who who would be the more famous early pragmatist. William James had his start in psychology, uh, though in those days philosophy and psychology were not so sharply distinguished. Uh, but uh, William James always had, therefore, a kind of a, among the pragmatists, he had a kind of individualistic bent. And uh, he wrote a fascinating, a great and fascinating book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, in which he was trying to uh, basically uh, well, I think explicitly, uh, he was trying to do, abolish theology and replace it with a psychologically informed study of religious experience. I think that's pretty expl explicit in his work. Nevertheless, the guy is a great humanist, uh, very erudite, very perceptive, uh, if you've never read Varieties of Religious Experience, it's a trip. It's a rich and interesting trip. And basically, he distinguishes in this book two psychological types, the, uh, the tender-hearted uh, and the tough-minded. The tender-hearted and the tough-minded. And the tough-minded go happy, lucky through life because the slings and arrows fall off uh, them like water off a duck's back. Uh, they're tough-minded, you know, oh, I got a bruise here, so big deal, let's just forge ahead. The tender-hearted feel the pain of the world with excruciating sympathy. They can't step on an ant without cringing. Uh, they, they can't 
enjoy a hamburger without thinking of the big eyes of the cow that was slaughtered to make this meat. There's just these basic two um, psychological types. And the tough-minded are the most irreligious, or their religion is simply a way, a, a kind of boosterism uh, to keep them onward and upward in their tough-minded ascent uh, to power, privilege, and status. Ah, alas for the tenderhearted. They're the ones who feel deeply the pain of the world. And uh, as he analyzes religious experience along this psychological typology, right, he discovers, or he argues, I should say, that the tenderhearted have the profounder perception of Darwinian reality. Because in truth, the world is red in tooth and claw. The whole evolutionary system is based upon predation and mass extinction events and enormous amounts of suffering in order to produce slight, slight forward steps in the ascent of species culminating in man. And now humanity is saddled with, at least in its tender-hearted expressions, is saddled with this deep awareness, this almost Buddhist awareness of the illusion of the normal world and the deep suffering that it conceals. And that's how he interprets religious, the profounder religious experience. Um, James uh, thought that in doing this, he was replacing theology with empirically oriented religious studies. In fact, in many ways, James is kind of the ancestor of contemporary religious studies. Uh, he and Josiah Royce were good friends. They both taught at Harvard. And at the, I met, I've spent some time on James uh, because he's important as an early pragmatist for a number of reasons. Uh, I should have mentioned, too, that the way he, there, what does he do with religious belief? Religious belief for James is nothing but a instrumental ideology uh, that is useful either for the tough-minded or for the tender-hearted. That is to say, uh, the beliefs that are associated with either of these psychological types are simply uh, reflections of their stances, their, their pragmatic stances in the world. And so we don't invest a lot of stock in what these people believe. Uh, that's why theology is passe. The best interpretation of beliefs is simply, uh, I believe what helps me uh, on my path in life. Uh, and, uh, okay, so uh, nobody can decide what beliefs are right or wrong. It really is uh, relative to your psychological type and how you're proceeding in the world and so forth. Well, that's certainly still with us. I mean, that that's almost, I would say, the, the default position of the n non 
religious believer in our, our uh, contemporary world. It's just like it's all it, it's all you're just projecting outward whatever gets you through the night, basically. Right. Yes. Religion is projection. That's a you could say, right? Psychologically useful projection, right? Psychologically useful, whatever gets you through the night, right? Um, now, what, what's interesting is that Royce and James were good friends, uh, and they were colleagues at Harvard. And Royce had spent most of his career as a philosophical idealist. He was perhaps one of the uh, best American interpreters of the philosophy of Hegel, uh, in the 19th century. And he found in Hegel a kind of a, a ideology of progress, which is not a bad reading of Hegel. Uh, you know, you might have to make a few adjustments here and there. Hegel thought that the, uh, the Prussian Empire of his time was the achievement of absolute consciousness and so forth. And Rose <laughs> thought, no, no, American democracy is. And so there's that kind of silliness going on there. Uh, but towards the end of his life, uh, after the turn of the century, uh, in the early years of the 20th century, uh, Royce had a kind of a conversion to Pauline Christianity. This is what makes him so interesting having spent a career advocating idealism, uh, he suddenly came, became aware that Pauline Christianity is not idealistic. It's not. It's just not idealistic. It's not idealism in, uh, in representational form. That's how Hegel interpreted uh, Christianity, that Christianity was the absolute religion but it was still in the form of representations, uh, pictures, uh, uh, myths, legends, uh, idols, icons. Uh, and it had not yet comprehended the representations. And that was achieved, Hegel said, in his philosophy, in which he saw the whole becoming of the cosmos uh, uh, comprehended in the Christian symbols, the Christian symbols, therefore, theoretically exposed as the actual becoming, the evolution of the cosmos until it acquires the state of absolute consciousness. So that's where Royce was coming from, that kind of idealism. And various uh, circumstances in life uh, brought him to a new consideration of Pauline Christianity. And here he uh, hit upon a new approach which was neither apologetics uh, nor was it uh, the kind of dogmatic theology he was familiar with from his time in history. Uh, he said both the critics of Christianity and the defenders of Christianity uh, don't really understand the problem of Christianity. 
And when I read that for the first time, I said, amen. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> how, how many stupid defenses of Christianity create? How many stupid attacks on Christianity? Yeah, so, so Royce's question is, what is the problematic in life that Christianity is dealing with? And here, he focused on Paul's epistles, and he analyzed them. And he said, uh, you know, there's, here's the situation, that no one can live life without um, some kind of tacit commitment uh, to beloved community. Uh, even if your life is nothing but a flight from beloved community, the fundamental situation of human creatures is this uh, sense that the good life, the good life would be the life in which all of us can find personal fulfillment as individuals in the fulfillment of all of us together in a community of love. He, and he argues pragmatically that given the uh, development of humanity through evolution, this notion is implicit in all that we think, do, and say. Uh, and this is very similar to what Jürgen Haberboss argued many years later when he said that we all posit an ideal communication situation. And that's why we can get angry when we're lied to or deceived because we tacitly assume that communication should be honest, forthright, and helpful. And when communication is not, we're outraged. No matter how many times we betray the ideal communication situation, we all assume it, we all presuppose it. This is very similar to what Royce was saying about the beloved community as something that we all uh, tacitly believe in, whether we can articulate that faith or not. And then he says, now here's the problem. The hell of the irrevocable. What happens when we betray? Think of the figure of Judas. What happens when we betray the beloved community? Uh, with a deed that can never be undone, that simply is what it is, and a, a deed of infidelity, a deed, an adulterous deed of betrayal, uh, which damages uh, the beloved community that we all depend on in some degree or another, and which therefore uh, justly excludes us from that company as a traitor. How do we over, how do we reconcile the betrayal of the beloved community? So notice now Royce has set up three ideas that human beings tacitly live towards uh, uh, or live their lives based on a belief in what Habermas called ideal communication, what Royce called beloved community, number one. Uh, 
Number two, we betray the beloved community, and we betray it fatefully with deeds that can never be undone. Caesar will forever be the one who crossed the Rubicon. Judas will forever be the one who betrayed Jesus, etc., etc. I will always be the one who did X. You will always be the one who did Y. There's no erasing. There's no erasing that uh, deed. There's no easy or cheap magic of forgiveness that just wipes out that out. The hell of the irrevocable is a real obstacle. And it jeopardizes the very life of the beloved community. It damages the beloved community and it excludes the traitor from its company. I'm struck by this because we've been talking how much about reality is change. But the one thing that cannot be changed is the past. And I remember coming across that idea in Aristotle ages ago, and it struck me so much then. And uh, Andrew and I have often remarked on that. <laughs> the past cannot be changed. It is the one fixed thing. You know, our, our knowledge of it may vary, but it as done and irrevocable, as you described, is just there. And it, it just, yeah, it, it's very helpful that Royce zeroed in on that because it does really hover over everything. And I feel like it's come to a new fever pitch in our time again at looking at all the irrevocable pasts and trying to figure out what on earth is to be done about them. Um, and um, one one possible response is sheer boiling outrage that wants to destroy everything, including everything that the past gave us. And it's, it's, it's not useful or helpful, but it is on some degree degree understandable. Oh, sure. And especially in our moment in history, in which knowledge of some of our idols uh, is being forced upon us, and we're seeing the clay feet of the idols. Uh, And this is not to deny that some of our idols have been monumental works of civilization. But like all idols, they have their clay feet, they have their dirty laundry, and we're getting exposed to that these days. And at, in the, I think often, Sarah, the rage is the contradiction between the pretension and the discovery of the reality. Uh, yeah, perhaps if we had would learn to be a little bit more humble about our achievements, we wouldn't be inclined to overreact so violently when uh, the, the uh, dirty underside is exposed. Though I, I, I would add to that that maybe having a tender heart has become its own form of idolatry. But we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. Right. right. Yeah, the fragility, of, the, the, <laughs> the fragility of contemporary consciousness. Okay, so that's Royce's second idea, the hell of the irrevocable. Now, notice what the cost is if you want to try to whitewash the hell of the irrevocable. You can try something like saying, well, that's who I was then. That's not who I am now. You can simply deny your own continuity with the person who did the deed in the past. Uh, That's one way of escaping the hell of the irrevocable. But as a result, you lose your personal integrity, your biographical integrity. And in fact, you kind of create a kind of 
perfectly postmodern self that feels free to reinvent itself from episode to episode to episode to episode uh, and not see that there's any narrative line connecting uh, the self from birthday to death day. But I think that's one typical way of trying to avoid the hell of the irrevocable, this postmodern idea that uh, I can simply keep reinventing myself. A second way of avoiding the hell of the irrevocable is the profound cynicism that says everything, like the, the matrix type of thing, everything is deception. There's no such thing. Beloved community, too, is a deception. Everything's deception, this kind of radical skepticism that we talked about earlier. So those would be two ways of trying to avoid what uh, Royce has argued. Can I add one more? Yeah. I, I would think a third option would be to accept the evil deed of the past and the judgment of the beloved community as fully deserved and therefore to despair and give up and to simply try to consume as much punishments and recrimination as possible because I don't deserve any better. The suicide of Judas. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yes. yeah. You're right. That would be the, the, the one that takes uh, the execution of that judgment upon oneself. Yes. And certainly our culture today is full of that uh, form of escape as well. So Royce, Royce is arguing then, if these two have to be affirmed, uh, that to live at all, we have to posit the beloved community. Uh, as we actually live, we betray the beloved community, and we cannot uh, evade the consequences of that betrayal, which have damaged the beloved community and have, have isolated me, estranged me from it as the doer of this treacherous deed. What then is, that's the life problem Royce is arguing that Christianity is addressing. And so the Christian answer to that life problem is the Redeemer, the member of the beloved community who takes upon himself the Isaiah 53, takes upon himself all the betrayals of the beloved community, takes responsibility for them in his own person and atones for them so that as a free gift, the one who has betrayed the beloved community can be justly forgiven, justly by the justice of the Redeemer who has taken responsibility for the crime and paid the price, paid the uh, suffered the consequences of the betrayal in his own person, in the place of the betrayal, so that justly forgiveness and new, newness of life can be offered to the one who is betrayed. So that's how Royce interp 
interpreted Christianity in this great and interesting book. That's very powerful. And it really, I think, drives home the point of, of you know, people often ask theoretically, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have saved us some other way? But this is, again, showing that there is a, an absolute continuity between the act of salvation and what we are being saved in and, and from and toward, because the body of the Redeemer dies in history, in a, a community, not terribly beloved at the exact moment of the crucifixion and you know it's a physical death it's a a social death it's it's all the the deaths in the actual reality where we experience these deaths and that's why it can actually repair them in the actual physical organic historical social reality that we live in yeah well said yeah quite right i think um so you know sarah that is kind of I could mention John Dewey, and we could talk about some other figures in pragmatism, uh, but Royce was the one who, uh, ahead, way ahead of Rorty, connected pragmatism to hermeneutics, and uh, I think that is uh, explicitly connected pragma- pragmatism to hermeneutics. And of course, we know that Martin Luther King Jr., uh, inherited his motif of the beloved community from this source uh, and uh, knew it profoundly uh, and uh, his ministry uh, made it a, an event in the course uh, of American history. Right. Well, and obviously it was so deeply affecting on you that you named two books <laughs> with the beloved community in the title. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, I'm developing the idea further in a couple of different directions. But still, I mean, as as a captivating image, it's obviously had a huge impact on you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. I guess I would like to just, as we're winding down now here towards the end of this, let me uh, just make one thing really clear that we didn't say at the beginning. For me, pragmatism is not a philosophical foundation for theology. I want to make that very clear. Uh, I don't regard pragmatism like Thomas regard Aristotle or um, as uh, 20th century German Lutherans regard Kant or Heidegger. I don't regard pragmatism as some kind of foundation for my theology uh, at all. Uh, I think theology has to stand on its own two feet, the gospel and the scriptures. And The reason why theology, on the other hand, has to engage with philosophy is because philosophy is really the epitome in any cultural moment of its best thinking about the state of humanity and its prospects and problems. Uh, Philosophy, for all its permutations through history, uh, represents the thinking of uh, of people about humanity, about itself. What is, a friend of mine put it this way, philosophy asks the question, what is the best account of our experience? And for me, pragmatism is a platform, or uh, not a platform, but a, a methodology uh, that is quite explicit about that as the task at hand. What is the best account of our experience in this sense of inquiry and and conversation that we've discussed? 
So it's a it's a toolkit more than a foundation. And in fact, if pragmatism became a foundation, it would it would be self contradictory and betray itself. I don't think pragmatism can actually provide any kind of foundations because it eschews metaphysics. Uh, it, you know, it's not interested in the classical question of of of, of, of questions of worldview construction or metaphysics. It is very much more a, an account, a, a social and historical account of human knowledge, uh, which enables us to get on with the tasks of science and philosophic conversation, uh, into which I think, as a theologian, I can, uh, uh, along these very same lines, get a place at the table and be a conversation partner with all sorts of other interesting people as deeply interested as I am in the situation and fate of humanity. So to finish up then, can you tell us why it has this lousy and uninspiring name of pragmatism? I mean, did, did the, the connotation of the word pragmatic in English evolve out of pragmatism? Did it mean something different when the term was adopted? It just seems so bleh. Well, it is blah. I mean, you know, and that's why I don't actually advertise the fact that I'm a pragmatist, you know, because it does have some baggage there. Like I said at the beginning, just the William James gross explanation that pragmatism asks for the cash value of statements. But but is he the one who named it? Like, did James give it the name pragmatism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote a little book called What is Pragmatism? Oh, okay. And why did he like it? Because it's of the cash value. He meant it that way explicitly. James is a little complicated because he had this deep interest in psychology, and he thought that empirical psychology was advancing uh, insights into the production of religious ideologies. And he wrote that book as a way of of, of testing out the idea of varieties of religious experience. Notice that the key point here is that experience is the matrix that generates religion. I should have mentioned that earlier. Experience is the matrix in which religion is generated. And so religious studies has to be have go at human experience with some theoretical insights and, and with some uh, methodological tools. And James thought pragmatism was an excellent way of doing that. Royce's main complaint against James is that his view of religion is utterly individualistic. He doesn't understand the social bond that is uh, uh, central to even individual life that, of course, Royce articulates in the notion of the beloved community. So I think that's the difference between James and Royce is that James was an individualist, too much of an individualist. And Royce had this more communitarian perspective on knowledge and religion. All right. Well, speaking of cash value, I think we should run a tawdry prize for whoever can come up with the best alternate term to pragmatism and uh, maybe get a little more uh, <laughs> more love on that account. Wow. 
But anyway, okay. Well, that I think that was really um, useful and and seeing ways in which this this technique and set set of tools can be used in the service of articulating the gospel in the worlds. And in a related note, next time on the show, we will be taking up the topic of pastoral authority. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.